Welcome to Angry Americans. Welcome to episode 18. I'm your host, Paul Rykoff. If you're not angry, you're not paying attention. And right now, all your attention should be on what happened in Detroit, Michigan. The legendary city of Detroit. The largest and most populous city in the great state of Michigan. The Motor City. Motown. Rock City. A beating heart. And a pounding Joe Louis fist of America. A hotbed of American innovation. Toughness. Grit. And music. The place that gave birth to Motown. And techno. And to... Stevie Wonder, and Madonna, and Alice Cooper, and MC5, and Ted Nugent, yuck, and Eminem, and the genius of so many others, including the guy you hear playing now, Jack White. Detroit has always been, and will always be, a true city of angry Americans, the best kind of angry Americans, the righteous kind of angry Americans, the kind that build things, the kind that dream, the kind that fights, and the kind that creates fighters and celebrates fighters and fighters that win. In the mid-1930s, Detroit started to be called the City of Champions. It was after the Tigers the Lions, and the Red Wings all captured the three major professional sports championships that were in existence at the time in a seven-month period. The Tigers won the World Series in October 35. The Lions won the NFL championship in December 1935. The Red Wings won the Stanley Cup in April of 1936. In 1932, Eddie, the Midnight Express Tolan from Detroit, won the 100-meter and the 200-meter races and two gold medals at the 1932 Summer Olympics. And in 1937, Joe Lewis won the heavyweight championship of the world. But Joe Lewis wasn't born in Detroit. Joe Lewis was born in Alabama in 1914. But in 1926, the Ku Klux Klan threatened his family. And Joe Lewis's family moved to Detroit, forming part of the post-World War I Great Migration. That was when millions of black families moved out of the South and all across America. Joe Lewis's brother worked at the Ford Motor Company. Joe worked there for a time himself, too. But Detroit knows a thing or two about big fights. And for the last few years especially, Detroit's been fighting back. On July 18, 2013, the city of Detroit filed for Chapter 9 bankruptcy. The entire city did. It was the largest municipal bankruptcy filing in U.S. history by debt, estimated at 18 to $20 billion. But in the last few years, Detroit's getting back off the map, showing that fighting spirit and making a comeback. From new tech startups to awesome local beer companies to Shinola, which started out as a classic watch company and has grown into much, much more. Detroit is fighting 
and knows a thing about fighting. And this week, Detroit was home to the biggest political fight of the 2020 election so far. A glitzy, at times enlightening, at times infuriating two-night extravaganza. 20 candidates, 10 each night. And whether you're a Democrat, a Republican, an Independent, or a Communist, a real one, or just one called by Donald Trump, no matter what you are, you were probably watching. And if you were, you're probably a bit exhausted and likely a little bit angry. If you were watching, I got you. If you weren't, I got you. We're going to dig into all of it, from inside, from outside, who won, who lost. And it's not just with regard to the candidates, but also with regard to the issues. Some issues won and some issues lost. And in the days ahead, this combative, frustrating, sometimes inspiring, sometimes infuriating process will determine not just if the Democrats win or lose, but if America wins or loses. If we keep the belt or if we hit the mat and go down for the count. For real. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. Stakes is high. The highest in our lifetime. And our guest this week was a corner man for one of the greatest political fighters of all time. Our guest is another important, iconic, or inspiring American that's shaping what America was, what it is right now, and what it will be. He's a man of the moment and a rising star in media. Tommy Vitor was a spokesperson for President Obama and the National Security Council from 2011 to 2013. And alongside John Favreau and John Lovett, Tommy is the founder of Crooked Media and one of the hosts of the massively successful podcast, Pod Save America. Pod Save America is one of the most influential media platforms in democratic politics. And he's also the host of his own podcast, Pod Save the World, which focuses on foreign policy and international affairs. But he was on the inside with Barack Obama from the early days when Barack Obama first ran for state senate in Illinois. Tommy Vitor drove Obama's press van across rural Illinois. He later became deputy press secretary for Senator Obama the following year and press secretary the year after that. And during President Obama's campaign from 2007 to 2008, Tommy was Obama's lead press guy in the critical battleground of Iowa. And after Obama won in 2008, Tommy became the White House's assistant press secretary and then served as national security spokesperson and special assistant to the president from January 2011 till March 2013. He was on the inside, at the highest stakes in the political world, at some of the most important points in modern history. Obama was the Muhammad Ali of politics. There'll never be another like him. And Tommy was like his customado. We're also going to check in with another fighter, Rob Sarah, who won the fight, the fight we've been tracking for the last few months, the fight for 9-11 first responders. I called Rob and spoke to him earlier this week, just as he was leaving the White House. And you're not going to want to miss that. He's got a thank you for you and an inside scoop on what it's like to be inside the White House after months and months of fighting. Rob Sarah's a fighter. Detroit's a fighter. And many of you are fighters. So ring the bell. It's time to invoke our inner Max Kellerman. 
Joe Rogan or Tyler Durden and break down the political fight club that was this moment in American politics. And as always, it's Angry Americans, so we're bringing a flurry of punches that is the four eyes. So get ready to hit the speed bag of integrity. We're slipping a jab of information. We're cocking a haymaker of impact and unloading an uppercut of inspiration. It's time to step into the ring and break it all down. This is a celebrity death match. We don't have no fancy commission and we ain't got no rules. So let's get it on. Welcome to Angry Americans, episode 18. As an independent, sometimes I sit outside and go, what is going on with the Democrats? I need someone to help me understand it from the inside. And I've been lucky enough to know and meet Tommy Vitor over the years. He's a a rock star in media right now. He is one of the founding hosts of Pod Save America. He's the host of Pod Save the World, Uh, has worked in national security and foreign policy issues for his entire professional career, pretty much. And I think it's a really important voice uh, and a cool guy. And Tommy, are you with us? Thanks so much for joining us, man. I'm here and I'm feeling deeply embarrassed by that introduction, but thank you for having me. Don't, man. Don't. You guys are, you guys are crushing it. And, uh, and you've met most of these, or many of these candidates, and I want to get into that. But we have a debate of the day. I'm not sure if you heard that intro. And this is happening in Detroit. We're asking all callers and guests, if you have to make a choice, there is no third-party option. There is no Steve Forbes. There is no Ross Perot. You must choose one. Tommy Vitor, if you had to choose Stevie Wonder or Eminem. Oh, wow. Stevie. Why? Stevie. Why? Because I think, uh, listen, some of those early Eminem albums were on in my car for years at a time. But I think like when I listen back, to some of the M stuff, like it was innovative. It was something none of us had heard, but I think the Stevie tracks are timeless, especially mm. in their musicality and his ability to like play every instrument and sing unbelievably and the way he influenced the culture for decades. So like, it's an, it's not an easy choice, but I, I would land on Stevie. I, I feel you, man. It's dividing America. It's, divi- it. it's dividing America. What's also maybe not dividing America is when we watch the Democratic Party, Tommy, on some levels, it, it's like watching them eat their own. And, yeah, and, 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 and some of that is the process, right? It's natural at this stage of the, the process, but the stakes are, are also higher. So maybe I want to get into national security and the AUMF and, and the issues that I know you know a lot about, but on, on a very macro level. Like, what do you, what did you see last night as an insider? And I think you are kind of a, a Democrat whisperer, right? You, you know what's going on. What did, what did you see last night? What were your big takeaways? My big takeaways were, you know, you had some pretty confident front runners in, in Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, and to a slightly lesser extent, Pete Buttigieg. And then you had a, a lot of folks who were polling, you know, at 1% trying to go after them in an effort to recreate a moment for themselves that might be viewed the way Kamala Harris's takedown of Joe Biden was in the first debate. And I don't think any of them really achieved it. And I do think that, like, you know, I think that uh, the casual observer 
could be forgiven for watching big chunks of that debate and just feeling like, man, this conversation is is just kind of annoying. It's like they're <laughs> right. they're sort of setting them up to fight at every at every instance. And like a, some of that is on the moderators, right? Because they kept going to the candidates and sort of asserting that one candidate had attacked another when it hadn't really happened that way. I mean, at the end of the day, like there was a very substantive conversation about health care. There was a long substantive conversation about immigration. Uh, I saw you tweeting my um, the things that were bugging me, which was I can't believe we didn't get to foreign policy until two, ta- two hours into it, especially when we have uh, U.S. service members uh, fighting in, in wars in Afghanistan and Iraq and all sorts of other places. So that bummed me out. But uh, yeah, I mean, look, it was... Um, I, these debates are tough. Ten people's tough, but uh, hopefully tonight it's a little less, you know, all over the place. I'm with you on the moderators, and I think I think Tapper had uh, a good moment later in the show, and he talked a lot about he drove the conversation on Afghanistan. But up front, like we got to call it like it was. He was just getting them to fight. He yeah. was just poking, saying, you know, you fight with you. What about what he said? It kind of got. I think it brought it down a notch, and I, I don't think that serves the conversation very well. And the moderators, you know, they, they can handle it. They're 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 big boys and girls, and they're and they're on the big stage here. And, and I think it's also, you know, a, a question of. Um, you know, will new media voices emerge and will new platforms emerge? And that's what you have done and your show has done and Pod Save America has done. And now you guys are, people should know, you're also in Los Angeles. So it's not like you're on the road between New York and, and DC when people are going back and forth on the candidate show. They got to be out in LA or come to LA to meet with you. But of the crew, you know, last night and maybe the crew tonight, who are you most impressed by, Tommy? I, so I was very, I mean, I'm always impressed by Warren. I thought, I thought Bernie uh, did pretty well defending himself. Mayor Pete has a tone and tenor uh, and a core message about generational change that I think came through uh, and that people picked up on. I thought Beto O'Rourke did a lot better in this debate than he did in the first debate. Now that's a pretty low bar because right. he, had a, he had a tough first debate. He kind of disappeared, but you know, good for him for stepping up his game. Um, as annoying as he was to me at times, John Delaney, like at least distinguished himself. People now probably are more likely to know his name. They saw him on stage. Um, I thought Bullock had some moments early that were better, but his exchange with Elizabeth Warren about the use of nuclear weapons at the end was kind of baffling to me. And it felt like he needed to maybe bone up on foreign policy a bit. What what about you? Like who, who, who's jumped out at you? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I I think, you know, I, I, I think in the early stages like this, it's, it's a lot about tone and about personality. I hate to say it, but I think it's true. And I think Bernie channeled an inner anger and frustration and, and righteousness that appeals to people. I think he had a really good night that kind of transcended the issues. I think a lot of people gloss over on the nuances of the issue or they look for their buzz issue or their important topic, but the takeaways are about control and about projecting power and about making an impression. And and I think that Bernie did that last night. I think Warren had some moments. I think Pete, you know, at times shines, but he also has a, has a, has a way of kind of disappearing um, and, and that's in part about style, but he did differentiate himself on, on AUMF and on Afghanistan. And that's going to be a place for him, I think, to grow. Uh, and so we, when you look at that, Tommy, you know, the Democrats have always been viewed as soft on defense. That that's been the label. It's not always fair, but you know, the, the voices like Jim Webb and Bob Carey and others that were, you know, many times combat vets that were trying to move this conversation forward. You, you know, you were around for John Kerry, um, yep. 
you know, how do you view the Democrats standing on national security and foreign policy right now? And who are your winning horses if you want to make those arguments to, in some part, a new generation? Well, you know, I want to see Democrats step out and, and be forceful in defense of whatever it is they believe. And, and I would hope that, that they would believe in the need for diplomacy and not uh, sending our troops into combat in, in an endless fashion the way we done in Afghanistan, for example. So I'd like to see candidates step out and say, I would get back in the Iran deal tomorrow because I support diplomacy. I support trying to resolve our conflicts without firing a shot. I'd like to see them step up and say, uh, supporting our veterans is a foreign policy issue. <laughs> it's yeah. a national security issue to make sure we take care of the guys and men and women who are fighting these wars for us. And the fact that that wasn't discussed last night, the fact that the VA hasn't really been an issue in any of these debates is, is disappointing. And I know it's something you understand better than most people on the planet and care about and talk about on Angry Americans. So it's like, I, I hope we step up there. Um, you know, I, it was interesting that the, the, the contours of the debate about Afghanistan seem to be uh, whether we should get U.S. service members out in one year. And I think Beto O'Rourke was out in favor of four years, but he also sort of talked about getting all our troops home from all of these different places. I think he mentioned Yemen, Iraq, et cetera. So I think, I, I hope we'll be a little more nuanced about what service members are doing in various regions. Is it a training mission? Are we capacity building for local forces? Or are they outside the wire, you know, pulling the trigger, you know, in real combat? I mean, we need to be honest and we need to talk about it in a nuanced way. And uh, like the 10 or 11 minutes that foreign policy got last night didn't really allow for that conversation. Yeah, I think that's right. We're talking to Tommy Vitor, who is the founder of Crooked Media, the host of Pod Save America and Pod Save the World. Uh, he worked at the National Security Council in the Obama administration, was, was deeply focused on uh, national security, foreign policy, defense. He tweets at TVTOR08. You should definitely follow him on Twitter. He, he is influential. He is, what he says will move this party, and I think especially for a younger generation. Uh, you know, Tommy, I think you're right about the populism. I think that too often Democrats don't realize that national security and veterans issues are populist issues. Yeah, you know, yeah. Trump, Trump got that. And, and I would often talk to people and I would say, you know, what do you think about um, Trump and, and Clinton on veterans? And they would say, well, well, Trump is great on veterans. I said, how do you know? They said, he says it all the time. And he right. does. Like, if you say it enough, it, it becomes true. And I thought Beto had a good moment. People don't know that he sat on the House Veterans Affairs Committee and, and I worked alongside him. I think he actually has some stuff there he can be proud of. Um, but can you go, you know, kind of behind the scenes here? You worked for President Obama. Did you ever work on the debates with him? And if you did, what is a night like tonight, you know, like for Joe Biden's team behind the scenes and for him? Oh man, poor Biden. So I was not on the on the debate teams. I was, uh, you know, uh, back at headquarters working on the rapid response at the time. But when Obama did debates, I mean, w once you get to the general election, it becomes uh, an all encompassing thing for you know maybe a week. Uh, they would have literal debate camps. They would go to some hotel and rent the thing out, basically, uh, so that there were no distractions. You would do all kinds of preparation. Uh, in terms of like a, a book about lines of potential attacks and research that the candidates would read in advance. And then they would actually do like live uh, drills or, or sort of practices uh, of the debates themselves. And, you know, Obama had a, a, the first debate against Mitt Romney in 2012 and was just not 
great. You know, I think he, he sort of got his clock cleaned. And I think, yeah. you know, that's one of the challenges of incumbencies. You know, once you've been president for four years, I think you probably think to yourself, why do I have to debate these goobers? I got bigger things to do. I'm right. worse in the economy. But in a debate like this, I mean, prepping for, for nine other people on the stage is tough. And it's particularly tough when you're Joe Biden and you know that, you know, all nine of them are probably going to be coming after you. So this will, that will be the big question that I think is like, who goes after Biden the hardest and how does he parry and respond? Because, you know, I think people are looking for the debate about, you know, Medicare for all versus a public option and all the policy things. Sure. But a lot of Democrats really just want someone that can beat Trump. And if you don't look tough up there and like you're ready to debate and fight, uh, it's going to be bad. Mm. I think there have been some conversations, you know, pushing the Democrats about whether they want to be right or they want to be in power. Right. Sometimes yeah. there's a, a question that they've got to answer. But when you 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 talk to and talk for, you know, kind of a new generation uh, and definitely, you know, the Obama generation of people within the party, maybe that's even not the new generation right now. Maybe the AOC generation is the new generation. You know, the Obama generation is the middle generation. And then the Clinton Biden generation is the older generation. If you look at that kind of split um, and Democrats continue to eat their own, can they actually unite Tommy? Like, can there be a game of Thrones moment at the end here where they all rally around Jon Snow? Or is this going to be all the way through? Are they going to be ripping each other apart all the way through the convention and afterward while Donald Trump continues to stockpile money and just move forward? It, it's a very good question, and it's, it's a scary one. I mean, I think the, the way these primaries are set up, there is a decent chance that we could not have a candidate until the convention, and that is worrisome if candidates are still out there fighting each other. Um, that said, even as a Democrat that wants the party to come together at the end and that desperately wants to win, I want to see these candidates fight it out. I want them to vet uh, opposition research and policy differences and character flaws and, and money questions right now in the primaries. We get it all out of the way uh, and, and are in fighting shape by the general. I, like, I think that these, some of these debates are going to be stupid and petty and about things that we all roll our eyes at. Some of them are going to be about sort of big, profound policy choices within the party. Mm -hmm. And I do think there's some value there. Um, you know, look, 2016, the, there were some folks uh, in the, the Bernie and Hillary camps that just sort of never resolved it, never patched it up. And I do think that really did hurt us in the general election. I, I hope and pray that won't happen this time around. But, you know, it's going to depend on how, these, how this thing goes. Yeah. <laughs> and so as you think about that, Tommy, we're talking to Tommy Vitor, host of Pod Save America, Pod Save the World, uh, worked in National Security Council and the Obama administration. Is is there a place for moderates in this Democratic Party anymore, Tommy? I think so. I mean, look, the, the question is, is there a way for a moderate to get through the primary and win? Right. Because you yeah. saw a lot of positions getting discussed in the first and the second debate that I think would have been seen way as way, way, way left of where even uh, liberals in the party were several years ago. Right. For example, um, providing uh, health care to undocumented immigrants. Yeah. You can make a good yeah. argument. Or reparations, right? We talked in the earlier, so reparations was never an issue on the national stage like it was last night, right? That's right. That's right. That, that, that's, uh, you know, a lot of people came out and support reparations. Another one uh, is uh, decriminalizing the border. That's mm -hmm. a, that, 
you know, I don't think anyone was talking about it until Julian Castro raised it at the first debate. Now, all of a sudden, you have a bunch of people on that stage raising their hands. The only one that notably didn't was Beto O'Rourke. Uh, and I, it, Pete seemed to kind of try to walk back his position last night. I no longer totally understand what he sees. But, you know, look, uh, those polls, those, a lot of those positions are fairly unpopular in the general election. Um, now, maybe they'll get more popular if a candidate takes on the position and fights for it and, and makes the right argument. But, uh, like, that's what the primary is for, right? Yeah. Yeah. Can you also, you guys have been very impactful. You get millions and millions of listeners in your podcast that you know, comes out sometimes more than once a week, right? Um, you're, you're also disrupting the media landscape. So, you know, how do you feel about the fact that, you know, CNN and MSNBC and Fox have this kind of, you know, monopoly on the debates? I talked earlier about how refreshing it would be if they had to have it on C-SPAN or somewhere else. But but what what's your view on the media landscape here? I mean, the idea that presidential candidates would have come and sat with three guys for a podcast a couple of years ago would have been crazy, but it's now the new normal, right? So what, yeah. when you look at, especially in the year ahead, and we cover not just the debates, but the trail um, and the conventions, how, how do you see the, man, the media landscape unfolding, Tommy? I do think that there are more options for candidates to get a message out than ever before, and that is a, a good thing. I mean, people like, guys like you, guys like me, you can start your own podcast and media company and you know, develop a, a fan base and, you know, people start to turn to you and all of a sudden you're getting interviews that you never would have gotten a year or two. And I think, I think it's a good thing. I think more options is a good thing. I think being able to Instagram live your way through the campaign trail is a good thing. You don't have to go through the filter. Yeah. Um, regarding the debates, like, I just want to stipulate that I think that Jake Tapper and Don Lemon and Dana Bash are fantastic reporters. I think that part of the challenge for how CNN has handled these debates so far is you can see how important it is for them to monetize the debates. The fact that they did an hour-long like NFL draft-style pick'em thing right. with commercial breaks shows you that they won a bunch of money. The fact that last night we watched like 15 minutes of pre-roll, then we went to a commercial before the first question shows that you know finances and, and ads are a big part of these things. Like they know they're getting a lot of eyeballs and they're going to make some revenue off it. Now, look, I, I run ads on my show. I'm not knocking anybody, but right. I, I found it a little frustrating. Like that debate didn't need to be two hours and 45 minutes if we started on time and we didn't, you know, right. like wait 20 minutes to, to ask a, a candidate a question. Right. Right. Um, what do you think is Tommy Vitor? What, what do you think is, is the, the winning issue for, Democrats in the or winning issues in the national security and foreign policy place, uh, you know, un, uh, expecting that Biden will probably start to differentiate himself on those issues in particular if he wants to leverage his experience. You know, you, you you've you talked about the new conversation last night, which I think is absolutely essential, maybe the most essential conversation on the planet because of the stakes. Right, right. But, but where do you see the Democrats having a strong hand to play on on national security or foreign policy? Great question. I think that. Uh, voters writ large feel like they're sick of America looking stupid on the global stage. Uh, so I think they want to restore their standing in the world. I think that we want to uh, reinvigorate or, or repair alliances with you know, NATO, our European allies, uh, folks in the Western Hemisphere. And I think that you know, making a case that uh, as, a, as a candidate, I you know, fill in the blank, I, Andrew Yang, can restore those alliances. I think that uh, 
the the trajectory we've seen on the U.S. Iran relationship since we left the Iran deal has been pretty disconcerting, especially lately. And talking about the Iran deal and and reinvigorating our diplomacy as part of it will be important. Now, I mean, this will be challenging for Biden in particular, right? Because, you know, he voted for the Iraq war and Mm -hmm. his response to criticisms of that vote now seems to be that President Obama asked him to wind that war down and get all our troops out. That may be true, but I don't know if voters will will accept that and forgive uh, what they might see as an earlier lapse in judgment on that vote. I mean, certainly Obama hammered Hillary Clinton on that vote for mm. the entire primary. We're talking to Tommy Vitor. I only got a couple minutes left. I'm really grateful that you're spending so much time with us, man. Um, optics matter especially yeah. with this president because he, he pivots and uses them, right? Like he's attacking Ilhan Omar. Um, he's going to, you know, try to paint AOC and the squad as the face of the democratic party. They're like the new Nancy Pelosi, right? They're going to be in the ads and attack ads. Um, how much does it matter optically when things happened last night, like Tim Ryan, not putting his hand over his heart, you know, during the national anthem? You know, that's a great question. I, I noticed it in the moment. And I thought, you know what, whatever. It's fine. Like there was a there was a time in 2007 when Obama, I think, forgot to put his hand over his heart at the Harkin Steak Fry or some event right. in Iowa, and it was a thing. He didn't he didn't always wear a flag pin. That became a thing. These little symbolic things that can be kicked up, and you know, Fox News usually runs with them. I saw that Ryan just put out a statement, sort of apologizing and clarifying for the lack of hand on the heart. I mean, like you, you tell me, Paul. You you know you. You're you're a, a, an independent, a moderate. You served in the military. Like, does it offend you as an American? Does it seem unpatriotic to you if you see someone that forgets to put their hand on their heart like that? It doesn't offend me, but it's stupid. Like, I mean, <laughs> if, if, if you work at McDonald's, it's not a big deal. If you're running for president, you're you're, yeah. you're shooting yourself in the foot, right? Yeah. And, and especially, frankly, I watched his Twitter account. He didn't have a statement. He didn't have an explanation. So it kind of became like a Kaepernick moment where everybody was projecting their own idea of what he was doing rather than actually knowing what he was doing. Right. Yeah. And, and he didn't, it was a good test on some levels because he couldn't do crisis communications. Like he didn't tweet about it. When I went to bed at two in the morning, there still was no statement and it was trending on Twitter. So these yeah. like dynamic crisis reaction moments, I think are actually a good test, not just of the candidate, but of the dynamism of their team. Um, and you've been inside that. So, you know, you know what that means when you have to respond to something where you don't have to respond. I mean, you can't respond to that. How the heck are you going to respond to missiles going off in, in Korea, right? Like, yeah, you, it's, they did. They flubbed that. I mean, look, yeah. I got to be honest. I, I haven't seen uh, Tim Ryan hasn't come off as the most nimble candidate. Right, so right, right, right. Well, I want, I want to let you go. But before I do, um, you know, Marion Williamson. <laughs> And, and tonight, Andrew Yang. I mean, yes. a lot of people, I, I don't want to laugh when I say it because she, she made an impact last night. I'm going to get into that more after we let you go. But when you look at, you know, Andrew Yang or Marion Williamson, what does that mean for the party? Does it grow the tent? Does it bring in more people? Or does it, you know, create a laugh line or an easy target? You know, if you were strategizing and you were deciding who was on the stage and who wasn't, would you, would you keep them on there or would you kick them off? Well, I mean, look... You know, like to their credit, they've qualified under the rules that have been established. And so I think you have to respect that. I mean, Andrew Yang ran, has run a smart campaign. He is running on one issue, which is universal basic income, which means he'll give you $1,000 every month, 12 grand a year. It's just part of his economic platform. But 
he's been able to reach all these people by doing like Joe Rogan and all these shows and right. made a name for himself. Marianne Williamson came in, I think, with a, a pretty dedicated fan base. And it's interesting seeing her up there because some of the things she's diagnosing, some of the problems of the Democratic Party are accurate. Like, she's right that we're not going to beat Donald Trump with all head and no heart. But then she kind of goes on to be critical or dismissive of those others on the stage who have worked for years on policy ideas or have actually tried to fix this country. And it's like, give me a break with, you know, this, this sort of sweeping criticism of the party if you're not going to then offer any kind of solution. Like, right. I, she's right. not really making a ton of sense when she sort of pivots to what she would do. So yeah. we need to see a lot more out of her. And she's written some, some things in the past that are sort of odd, and I think it'll probably get kicked up now. So, I mean, if I was a candidate on stage with them, I don't think I would attack Marion Williamson. I don't think I would attack Andrew Yang, because ultimately, if they're bringing a couple million people to that audience that night who are watching, who are interested in them, you don't want to upset those voters. Right. The voters right, for right. you. But, like, you know, it is funny to have these kind of fringy candidates on the stage for a while. And they're not going away, right? Like, so, so they're probably going to make the next debate, and Bill de Blasio right. probably won't. Right. Right. Yeah. And yeah. just because of those 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 factors. Well, they're they're not going away. Tommy Vitor, thankfully, you're not going away. Thank you for what you do and for your service inside the national security apparatus. Uh, I hope you'll come back and, and join us again. I appreciate all that you do and, and for giving us an insight here into the wild and weird world of democratic politics. I hope folks will check out your podcast, Pod Save the World and Pod Save American and follow you on Twitter at, at TVTOR08. Thanks, man. It was great being here. I really appreciate it. And uh, you're good at this radio thing. It's a lot of harder to do this live than when you get so much edited. <sighs> I don't know. I get a lot of help, man. I get a lot of help. I get a lot, but I'm watching you guys and taking notes, and I pr- yeah. appreciate it very much, man. All right, I'm just folks. glad I didn't swear. Yeah. I'll talk to you soon. <laughs> Next time, we can curse. A lot okay, man. Cursing. You Thank follow. you. Man, it's hot out there. No matter where you live, It's hot out there. Whether you're in Detroit or Miami or Portland, it's hot out there. It's summer. And you probably at some point have to wear a dress shirt. And it sucks. There's nothing fun about it. Very little upside. We wear them. It's constricting. It's uncomfortable. It's hot. And we wonder, why is nobody making them better? Well, I've told you all about Mizzen and Maine. They make them better. They use performance fabrics. They stretch and they move with you all day long, almost like an athletic jersey, like sports gear. It's really incredible and it makes a huge difference. And in the summer months when that sun's beating down on you, a normal cotton dress shirt, it's like a sponge. It's gross and it never really fully dries. I've been there so many times, but not Mizzen and Maine. Those performance fabrics dry quickly and wick the moisture away like de Blasio's chances of being elected for president. You're never going to have to worry about looking like a mess, like Tim Ryan, when he didn't put his hand over his heart during the debates. But it's too hot for cotton, so check out Mizzen and Maine. Their shirts are wrinkle-resistant, making them perfect for travel. They're comfortable on a plane. You can pull them out of your bag. You don't have to worry about ironing them. You can wear them without a tie, like Andrew Yang. Um, but they're easy, folks. They work, they're comfortable, and you can wash them at home without paying the dry cleaner. So head over to Miz and Maine's website, www.comfortable.af. Yes, that's really their super cool website. 
comfortable.af or you can go to mizzenamain.com. Use the code angryamericans at checkout. Use it, angryamericans, and you'll get 10 bucks off a dress shirt right now. Mizzenamain, I hope you'll check it out. It's never felt better to look your best. All right, folks, night two of the Democratic debates just wrapped up, and it was another weird one. It was another weird debate, but it was another important one, and I'm going to break it down for you really quickly. As a reminder, here's who was on stage. Cory Booker, Julian Castro, Kirsten Gillibrand, Michael Bennett, Andrew Yang, Bill de Blasio, Tulsi Gabbard, Jay Inslee, Joe Biden, and Kamala Harris. Some quick reflections. Welcome to Planet de Blasio, America. If you watched him, you saw what he's all about. That was the self-designated ambassador of Planet de Blasio. It's a weird place. It's not a real place. He's not a real spokesperson for the people of New York City any more than Trump is the real spokesperson for the people of America. Gillibrand, I think, had some moments. She continues to struggle to break in, but she does deserve credit for leading on the 9-11 bill. She talked about it the first time she's talked about it on the debate stage. She was there this time on the 9-11 bill, uh, and she's been there throughout. But the real credit, of course, goes to first responder advocates like Rob Sarah and John Feel, Zadroga, Luis Alvarez, Ray Pfeiffer, and it should have never been that hard. Um, you know, in, in the first night, our wars and foreign policy didn't come up at all until two hours and 11 minutes into the debate. That's how long it took in night one. And I was really curious to see if it was going to come up at all. It finally did, but it was only after the second hour. It was going into the 10 o'clock Eastern hour. Uh, They did not talk about the fact that Hasma bin Laden, the son and heir to Osama bin Laden, was killed today. Uh, The U.S. had a role in the operations. Information is still unfolding. I was curious to see if that came up tonight. It did not. Uh, Big props to Jay Inslee. Uh, Governor Inslee was on stage tonight, and he focused on mental health. I thought that was important. He's another moderate that's been trying to get his voice in there. I think that was a takeaway. Uh, There were protests. Cory Booker's opening statement was actually interrupted by protests. That was noteworthy. Protesters were yelling, fire Pantaleo. Pantaleo is the cop who uh, was involved in the death of Eric Gardner five years ago. So when uh, Cory Booker started to speak, the protesters were yelling. They continued to protest when Cory Booker was making his opening statement. And then they also continued to protest, I think more importantly, when de Blasio was speaking. Uh, And he did not handle that well. He did not want anything to do with it. But that was an issue of note. Now, you know, For the moderators, Uh, I really felt like they continued to try to push fighting rather than pushing issues. You know, the moderators are fair game here. I think they've had good moments. I thought Don Lemon had a good moment in night one. I think Dana Bash has been fine. I thought Jake Tapper was good to focus on national security and defense on both nights. If we didn't have Jake Tapper there, it probably wouldn't have happened at all. But I think there's a difference between having the candidates debate the issues and having them debate each other. I was hoping someone would let the moderators know that and try to cut down on the fighting just so that we could have a real discussion. Um, 
Later in the night, the Garner family, as I mentioned, uh, was trying to push this issue of police brutality in the Eric Garner case, which actually, which actually came up in the discussion. And de Blasio, you know, said he was going to take care of it. I think the Garner family believes that they're going to get justice uh, thanks to de Blasio about as much as everyone in America thinks de Blasio is going to be president. Uh, Tulsi Gabbard. Tulsi Gabbard had a really strong night. Uh, she talked about the fact that she's the only female combat veteran in the race, the only veteran in the race. Uh, she talked about Afghanistan. She talked about ending the wars. I think she was in control. And at one point, she came after Kamala Harris. She Kamala Harris, Kamala Harris. She came after Kamala Harris in the same way Kamala Harris came after Joe Biden in the first debates. And I, and I think she scored some points. Um, Another point that I saw, the moderators kept throwing requests for responses at the candidates in this weird way that were kind of like political no-look passes. They would just turn their head and fire off at a candidate and say, Andrew Yang, what do you think? What's your response? Joe Biden, what's your response? It was this ping pong ball effect that I don't think served the debate very well. Continued to be very difficult to have 10 people on stage at the same time. Just makes for bad TV. But as I mentioned earlier, a good no, a good night for Gabbard. I think it was worth noting she's the only combat veteran on the stage. Uh, de Blasio continued to struggle, I think, to be relevant. Uh, he only takes responsibility for things when the news is good. Uh, when it's bad news, it's always somebody else's fault. We in New York City know that. And I think he's a politician, not a real leader. When we got into the final half hour, about 10 p.m., two hours in, still no focus on America's wars. No focus on Russia or Iran or ISIS or anything foreign policy. One thing of note also, no focus on opioids at all in both nights, two and a half hours, no focus on opioids at all. I know that's an issue that really impacts communities across the country. I've heard from many of you about it. I want to do more on it in this podcast, but how do you go two nights and not talk about an opioid epidemic that's taking the lives of people all across America? And, and frankly, especially in independent America and also in parts of Republican America, I think it would have been a real opportunity for the Democrats to offer solutions. Um, you know, later on, I think Joe Biden had the best moment of the debate so far. And it was when he talked about his own experience and his own tragedy, the unimaginable loss of, of losing his family in, in a car accident. I thought he really, he really shined. And anytime he talks about his personal experience and he talks about grief, I think it's, it's a strong moment for Biden. It reminds people why they like Biden. And I think Biden in general brings a really powerful option. If you think of Trump as an incredibly traumatic experience, after the Trump administration, we're going to need someone who knows how to deal with trauma. We're going to need someone who knows how to deal with loss, who knows how to make us feel better and figures out how to move forward. And Joe Biden could be that guy. He can be the, the consoler in chief. And I think that was a powerful moment for him that was kind of screwed up at the end when he talked about uh, texting. He was, I think he was trying to put forward a message to text a number to reach Joe Biden. And he said, three, zero, zero, three. And we thought he meant 2020. It felt kind of, frankly, like a senior moment. But prior to that, he gave a strong closing argument. Overall, I think it was a better performance for him. I don't think it was a fantastic performance. But I also have continued to believe that these debates may not actually matter that much. If people are buying into Joe Biden, if they think Joe Biden is the best chance to take on Donald Trump, I think that decision's already made. So we will find out over the next couple of months 
how much these debates actually matter when it comes to nominating the candidate. I think they will matter in elevating candidates and elevating names that we never heard before and elevating people like Tulsi Gabbard, who showed that she knows her shit when they finally got to Afghanistan at about 10, 15. She had a strong response. She talked about withdrawing from Afghanistan. She called Iraq the Iraq war a lie, which it was, and it needs to be said, but she knows her shit. And, and she's lived it, especially when it comes to war, unlike anyone else on that stage, with the exception, of course, of Joe Biden, who I think many people forget his son, Bo, deployed to Iraq. He didn't talk about it last night, but, but, it's, but it's an issue. And when they started to talk about Iran, de Blasio was jumping in to try to talk about Iran. And de Blasio knows as much about Iran as he does about getting out of bed before 10 a.m. This is a guy who literally can't get out of bed before 10 a.m. and can't fix the subways and can't do a lot of other stuff, but he was trying to desperately jump in about Iran. Andrew Yang, the entrepreneur, Andrew Yang, who continues to be kind of an, an underground sensation that's now gone mainstream, had some good moments. He was persuasive. He was effective. We were talking about him. He got some good airtime. And I think Andrew Yang is obviously not going to be president, but I think it's important to note that he is an Asian American man on the stage. And that is important. He is representing an entirely new demographic that you never see on a presidential platform. And he's talking about issues like technology and he's trying to bring an outsider view on things. And I think it was really refreshing. Andrew Yang is not going to be elected president. Neither is Marion Williamson, but a big takeaway from both nights is that they both had good nights. And at the end, I think it was a weird night. Biden was better but still shaky at times. Most others sounded desperate and never really got into a rhythm, especially Harris. I don't think it was a good night for Harris. It was a strong night for Gabbard. It was also a strong night for Julian Castro. It was a strong night at times for Booker, who also had the advantage of being right next to Joe Biden. So he was in the frame. And anytime you're in the frame, if you're in the shot on the screen next to the, the front runner, I think it elevates you. And, and, and Cory Booker sounded like the happy warrior. He had some good moments, and I think it's going to be uh, well covered in the next couple of days. I've talked about Yang. I think it was a good night in the end for Elizabeth Warren. Elizabeth Warren had a good first night, and nobody really looked as strong as she did in the first night in the second night. So I think we're going to really look forward to seeing the clash that will inevitably happen between Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, and maybe Pete Buttigieg. We'll see who the last five, six are. But I think that this narrowing of the field is happening, and we're moving toward it. And sooner or later, there will be just a few. But until then, the battle royale of democratic politics will continue. We will see if they can actually come together like the tribes in Game of Thrones, or will it continue to be gangs of New York ripping each other apart? That's my summary of night two. Let me know what you think. Go to angryamericans.us or use the hashtag angryamericans. We will continue to cover the debates. You get about a month off. The next debates are coming in September. Until then, keep an eye out and stay vigilant. And we will continue to cover it because there's a lot of reason to be angry out there. And the debates, they give you at least some good reason to be angry. But I hope some reason to be hopeful and most importantly, reason to be engaged. All right, folks, Rob Sarah is an American hero. 
and he's a winner. Thanks to a lot of support from a lot of you, we're all winners. This week, President Obama finally signed the 9-11 Victims' Compensation Fund extension into law. And I caught up with Rob to find out what being inside the White House, what this fight and what this entire experience has been for him, for his family, and what it means for our country in the days ahead. Here's my interview with Rob Sarah. Today is a day for us to celebrate people power, to celebrate patriotism, to celebrate tenacity, to celebrate the grit that can overcome just about anything, even Washington. It can even overcome Washington, and that's what our guest has done. Rob Sarah is a 9-11 hero. His first day on the job as a firefighter was 9-11, and for the last few years, he's been tenaciously leading a fight alongside John Field, John Stewart, and many other advocates to get the Victims' Compensation uh, Fund extension passed. It's formalized this morning at around 10 o'clock with a signing ceremony at the White House, and Rob Sarah is on the line with us now, fresh out of the White House. Are you, are you there, sir? I'm here, Paul. I'm sorry for the bad connection. I'm in a fire department van driving as fast out of Washington as we could possibly go. <laughs> <laughs> that is that is a good reason, man. I'm I'm happy you were able to make this work. I know it's been a wild day for you and for so many others, but I also hope you feel a tremendous sense of accomplishment. I know it's maybe not celebration, but you know, tell us how are you feeling, man? How are you feeling right now? Uh man, I gotta tell you, it was uh it was emotional, you know. I, ever since the Senate vote last week, uh, it's just, it, I've just been a ball of emotion. You know, I, I let it go that day, man. I cried for like three hours. I don't know. My wife was like, are you ever going to stop? <laughs> but uh, I, I felt that way today. I just felt, I thought of Ray. I thought of Louie. I just thought of all the guys we've lost along the way. I thought of all the people who are going to get sick, who don't even know it yet. Um, it was emotional, to say the least. Uh, how many trips did you make over the course of this endeavor, Rob? Um, since October, I don't know. I, I this is I don't know, somewhere between fifteen and twenty. Um, you know, I don't know. I don't keep keep counting. Back, way more than I would have liked. Back and forth. We 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 talked yeah. in the past. That we did a fundraiser for the the Ray Pfeiffer Foundation in Long Island. Um, you know, this earlier this summer, and then after the fundraiser you guys all got in the trucks and drove down that night in the rain to continue to take up the fight in Washington the following day. But it's been like that for months, for some of you guys, years. So Yeah, basically just on call waiting to be told when we had to get in the car, you know. When, when somebody would give us a meeting, we had to go, you know. That's, that's just the way it is. When you look back on it now, and it and it's never over, but at least this this massive piece is over, right? For the community, um, what'd you learn about Washington, man? And what'd you learn about America? Um, I learned some good things and some bad things. You know, I learned, uh, unfortunately, that this government doesn't really work for us. Um, you know, if 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 it did, we wouldn't even have have been here in the first place. You know. But I also learned that if you want to, if you need change, if you want to make change or you want to get something done, you got to get in your car and you got to go down there and you actually have to do it. Uh, you know, tweets are good. Uh, you know, writing an emotional Facebook post is good. But unless you start going down there and getting people's faces, nobody's going to listen. Um, and I learned that it's possible. You know, we just got an up and down bill passed. 
um, with 97% of the Senate voting for it. You know, uh, you don't see that these days. So I think with hard work and if everyone can't co- can come together like we did, you know, we're, we're a group of, you know, vastly different backgrounds that just came together with one goal and anybody can do it. You know, whatever, whatever your issue is, you got to put in the work. Unfortunately, um, you know, our, our leaders, so to speak, um, only react when pressured to, uh, as you know. So you, you brought that pressure, man, time and time again. Have you, I, w- I want to kind of paint the picture for folks because I've had the honor of, of being at the White House for ceremonies and for events and even for meetings, and it's surreal, no matter who is the president, no matter what the circumstances are. And I, I texted you last night, and I told you the one piece of advice a, a Vietnam vet gave me once on my first visit. He said, walk slow. He said, walk slow and just take it in and absorb it. And I reflected on the fact that, you know, my grandparents lived here for, uh, you know, decades, almost 90 years, and they never set foot in the White House. They immigrated to this country with really nothing. And, and so many people in this country will never actually set foot inside, especially now with the increased security. So had you, had you ever been inside before? And whether you had or hadn't, can you explain that what that experience was like today? I, I hadn't. Um, you know, I've seen it from the gate like everybody else, but I never, I've never been inside. Uh, certainly to be invited inside, uh, I found it to be a great honor. Like you said, no matter who the president is, um, you know, the White House is still the White House. It's still the same, uh, you know, since the mid-1800s or whatever. But I, I don't know. I, I, you're right. I still haven't been able to soak it all in. Um, unfortunately, we uh, we got put on lockdown, so we weren't allowed around as much as we would have liked. But uh, yeah, it was amazing. Meaning um, they they locked you guys in the rose garden and kind of kept you to a, a specific area of the building. No, afterwards we went in. We were supposed to have another uh, you know a private ceremony um, with Ray Pfeiffer's family, and uh, something came up, so we weren't allowed to. So I was hoping for that, but uh, but yeah, it was it was pretty cool. Um, you know, all, all I really got to see was a rose garden and uh, and a waiting room. But <laughs> you know, I'll take it. And um, I didn't. I was trying to find the cover. Was John Stewart there? No, John was not there. Do you know? I I, I tweeted over the weekend if he was going to be there, get your popcorn ready. Do you know what the story was? Was was he invited? I have no idea. I I, I think John's on vacation. Um, <laughs> well deserved at this and- point, right? Yeah, and uh, you know, I don't blame him for being on vacation. So, yeah, and did you see? Did you see politicians there that you hadn't seen very often in the last year? Or what was the what, what was that like to see? You know, they they always say that um, you know, victory has a thousand fathers and, and failures as an orphan. And I feel like when this happens, everybody comes out of the woodwork. But um, what what was your view yeah. and your take on the politicians and a lot of other folks that showed up for the party? Um, well, besides uh, Peter King, who we see often, um, yeah, most of the politicians there were people I've never really seen. Um, I don't know, man. I, I, you know, Rudy Giuliani was there. Um, you know, it was, I wouldn't say it was surreal seeing him. I've met him before, but it was just a little odd that he hasn't really been outspoken about this issue up until last week. You know, it would have been nice. Um, 
Yeah, you're right, though. That's, I mean, they're, they're, they're looking to have a parade now. So that, that's what happens with stuff like this, right? Everyone wants to, uh, I don't know. They're looking to have a parade in, in, in Washington, in New York? or are they? No, in New York. You, you, you haven't heard about this? No. No, fill us in. Uh, I've been doing the show. Uh, yeah. I, I miss this. <laughs> well, this is days old now. Uh, apparently, they want to have a parade down the Canyon of Heroes, um, which I'm not really quite sure how I feel about. But Like they did for the Women's World Cup team a couple weeks ago. Exactly. Huh. Exactly. Yeah, that would be interesting. Would Giuliani get a float? Would Tr Trump, I don't know. Trump get a You need your own damn float, man. <laughs> I don't want a float. I just want, I just want the cops and firefighters in New York City to get paid a fair wage. I'd rather them save the money and, and spend it on something like that. That's, um, that's yeah. powerful. So what, um, you know, I, I, I mentioned it in the intro, you probably were um, moving around and maybe you didn't hear it, hear it, but, you know, this was not without controversy in, in the final days with Mike Lee and Rand Paul voting no. Um, I imagine they weren't there today, but can you can you reflect on that moment? And John Feel had a great quote where he said, "You know, we whooped you, we told you so, and we beat you, right?" But can you can you talk about that moment in particular because it added, you know, one more hurdle, right? Right before you got to the end, there was one more hurdle, and it was Rand Paul and Mike Lee standing there trying to trying to block it. What are your What are your thoughts yeah. now on that? I think that's that's what brought the tears, you know, when that when that when Rand Paul's vote went down, I knew that we had him. Uh, you know, I, I really don't know what they were getting after, what the, what their uh, agenda was. I mean, it really doesn't make sense to me, considering especially considering the amount of support we had from both sides. Um, yeah, I just I don't know. I I hope they're up for re-election soon. I hope people paid attention. And I hope people go after him, you know? Like I said to Rand Paul, he, he, he's focused on this when he should be focused on his own state. I don't know what, why, he, um, why he felt the need to draw a line in the sand over this. If you're just tuning in, we're talking to Rob Sarah, uh, New York City firefighter, 9-11 hero, who uh, was a key leader in the passage of the extension of the Victims' Compensation Fund for 9-11 first responders, which was just signed into law this morning by President Trump. Uh, we, we don't get a whole lot done in Washington, uh, and, and definitely not very rarely something that goes through the Senate 97 to 2, but that happened last week, and the signing ceremony happened today. Rob was there. Um, Rob, what do you think happens next well beyond the pr possible parade but but what but what else happens next for this community um i think we take a breath now um and we start focusing on taking care of each other you know like for me i'm i'm gonna focus on the ray pfeiffer foundation and what we do and and that's it because that's that's really all that's left now you know we're done you know with the, the bills are taken care of, the health care, the compensation they're done for another 75 years. So our focus now should be on, on taking care of each other. And we've been doing a pretty good job at it so far. And, uh, and that's it. I hope that the people out there that are sick or have, re have received reduced claims uh, now can breathe a sigh of relief that they're going to get made whole. Um, you know, because it, people are in really bad situations, you know, and I hope that the special master can get those funds out as quickly as possible. Uh, and the, and for the people that are going to get sick and don't even know it yet, you know, those 19,000 school students that we always talk about, 
eventually it's going to get them. You know, there was bad stuff in that area. You know, with 160 toxins, 400 tons of asbestos. Um, we see what's going on around us now, and, and it doesn't paint a pretty picture. So I hope everyone just takes the time to relax, uh, you know, and, and just enjoy what life we have left, you know. What else can we do? So John Feel has been a vocal advocate. He was, you know, one of the key players in this. So have you. You've been similarly critical, and I think your leadership has shined. So do you think John would ever run for office? And what about you, man? Would you run for office? Um, I can't speak for John. Um, it certainly seems like he's poised for it. Um, um, I certainly think he could do it. I mean, he's been beating politicians for 15 years. So, <laughs> uh, you know, I think he's well suited. Um, as for me, I don't know what I'm going to do, man. I, I need to rest. <laughs> yeah. I'm tired. My body hurts. Um, you know, you know, all the stuff that I'm going through. Uh, I'm just going to take some time with my family and, uh, we'll see what happens. You've I have no plans to, uh, to run for any office at, at the moment. But, uh, how about this? If de Blasio gets elected president, I'll run for mayor. <laughs> we, we need better odds than that, Write man. That down. Write that down. <laughs> we, need, we need better odds than that. And I don't even think that will give de Blasio support in the polls at this point. But, 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 but we'll see. Um, you know, when you, when you think about, uh, I know you're still processing this, man, but you, you've been really um, incredible and in leaving your family and sacrificing. You, you represent what the best of what this country is all about. You know, this idea that you leave your family and you go out and fight a good fight and then you come home. Um, you know, can, can you, can you even process, you know, what this means for your kids? Um, and, and frankly, do you recognize what a role model you've become for so many people that listen to this show and have been tracking on you for the last couple of, of months? Do you, do you, do you yet understand how important this has been for so many other people? Um, I appreciate you saying that. I mean, uh, a, a lot of, uh, my new tw Twitter followers, which I assume are your listeners, um, have said some very nice things. Um, but that was always my goal, you know, was just to be a role model for my kids. Um, I want to leave them as much, uh, knowledge, uh, as I can, like any parent does, you know, and I feel like I'm under a time um, so that was my goal in this was, you know, obviously to help the 9-11 community, but to, to leave that legacy to my kids. And I don't know. I think they're still too little yet. Um, I think they, you know, they see daddy on TV and they, they get excited, but I don't think they fully understand exactly what I'm doing. Um, so we'll see, you know, you'll have to ask them when they get older, but, uh, you know, but I, I appreciate the kind words. But. So you're you're in in a FDNY truck right now, or you're in some kind yeah, of yeah. I'm in I'm in Ray's van. I'm in the, the uh, family transport van that Ray donated. And for so folks I, who maybe don't know Ray Pfeiffer's story, I think it's important now to to reflect on it. Can you quickly summarize it for us? And also maybe if if you have any uh, you know uh, moments from from being with his family over the last couple of days, what it's meant for them. Yeah. Um, you know, I think I think this this was great for them. I think I wouldn't say it brought them closure, but it, I think it brought them a sense of peace uh, with Ray's passing. You know, it's been a couple of years, but uh, 
you know, Ray made such an impact on everyone. I can only imagine uh, how much his family was hurting. Um, but Ray, Ray was the, was the was the face of the fight in 2015 when we first got the uh, health care bill passed and the original BCF. Um, as he was dying from stage four renal cancer, um, you know, he went through hundreds of surgeries. Most of his bones were replaced with metal. He was in constant pain. But he always had a smile on his face. Uh, and even when John Stewart would would uh, shame down a politician in the hallway, Ray would roll up and quietly say he was sorry, um, you know, that he didn't mean to offend him. You know, it, that's just the kind of guy Ray was. Um, and I actually heard a funny story from Ray's wife today that I never heard before. That The day he first became a firefighter, his first day on the job, he showed up at the firehouse early and was so excited that he was running across the street and he got hit by a car. <laughs> And uh, he ends up sliding across the hood of the car and he's laid on the street and he's standing up. He's instantly pissed at him because now he's got to fill out paperwork. <laughs> so <laughs> I think that's the perfect way for Ray Pfeiffer to start his career on the fire department. Um, yeah, Ray was just a great guy. Uh, he cared so much about the fire department and what he would call the brotherhood. And uh, I think today, um, today, Ray could finally rest in peace, you know? Mm. Did um, when, when, did did you get a chance to talk to the president yourself? Um, briefly while he was signing it, uh, you know, it wasn't just me personally. While he was signing the bill, but while I was eagerly awaiting him to sign the bill, mm. um, but yeah, no real interaction. When you like taking a step back beyond this, Rob, I think you guys and gals have brought tremendous inspiration at a time when we need it in this country, right? You kind of brought it down to basics, you know. The, the people who run into danger and the people who who really care about family and country and community in a way that I think I think resonates. Um, the reality is when you're, you know, in that van, maybe you're going through Baltimore or you're, you know, driving back across a country that's it's really divided. Um, I mean, does this process... I'm a sign that says ML King Jr. Highway right now, so yeah. Does this, does this process... Um, you know, give you any any thoughts into the state of affairs in America where we're so divided? And, you know, is there a message of hope or inspiration or clarity that you can give people as, you know, frankly, the, the president continues to tweet and attack Baltimore and people attack back and it seems like they're ripped apart. You know, what what, what are your thoughts on the broader state of affairs in America right now? Um, I hope I hope that we've inspired people. Um as far as the state of America, I wish I wish people would would uh, undig their heels, so to speak. I feel like everyone's got their heels dug in, and and we have no conversations anymore. There's no discourse. We need to we need to talk to each other. Clearly, there's a problem. Um, you know, no matter which side you're on, you have to listen to the other side if we're going to find some sort of middle ground. Um, and if if what we just did, if we what we just pulled off shows anything, is that is that sometimes you have to make the hard decision, you know. Um, people don't always want to do what's hard. Um, and I think we've fallen into a rut as a country has taken the easy way out all the time. Um, where it's easier just to say, I hate you or I disagree with you rather than figuring out why you disagree with somebody, you know. And, and, and I always say, you know, the, the, the right decision is usually the harder one to make. And I wish people made the right decisions more. If you want to make change in Washington, uh, Stop fighting with people on Twitter. Go to Washington. You know, uh, if you know, we have all these different marches on Washington. If we all just united and 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 
agreed that we just, you know, want to live in a better place, I think we could get done. I mean, what we, mm. what we just did. Uh, but we can't do that. We, for some reason, um, I guess it's easier to just, to just, uh, disregard someone rather than try to figure out what they're, what they're feeling or trying to say. I wish we could get you on the debate stage tomorrow night and Wednesday night or get you to ask a question. Maybe we'll put a good word in with Cuomo and see if they can use you as a part of a question from the from the moderators. But um, because I know you, you, want be, you want me to be Ken Bone? Is that what you asked? I, 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 want, I, I want I think America <laughs> wants more of Rob Sarah. Right. So if, if Rob Sarah can get on the debate stage or get his own show on CNN, I think a lot of people will be watching and and, and supporting it. But you're going to be doing a lot of celebrating and you've been a frequent guest on this show and on my podcast, which I want to thank you for for being a part of. If you want to hear an extended interview with Rob, go back and listen to Angry Americans episodes from earlier this season uh, where he, he tells the full story. But you're going to be doing some celebrating. And so when you celebrate with your kids, you got to you got to chime in on the debate of the day, man. I'm not letting you off um, cake or ice cream. If you had to pick one, cake or ice cream, Rob, Sarah? Uh, you always ask the hardest question. Uh, I mean, you can handle it, man. I know you can handle this one. You I just know. took over uh, Congress, man. You can handle cake versus <laughs> ice cream. I'm going to have to go ice cream. I mean, do I get to pick my toppings? Or? Sure, man. You just you just signed a historic bill. You can pick any toppings you want. You can have cake. and You know what? I'll make an exception. Today, Rob, Sarah, you can have cake and ice cream. You, all the other 911 first money, you guys get both. And lifetime right, supply. Perfect. Cuomo's I'll buying. A lava cake with a scoop of vanilla. There you go. See? There you go. Rob, Sarah, <laughs> bringing people together left and right. Look, man, I, I want to just uh, end by, by thanking you. On behalf of millions of people around this country who've been rooting for you on this issue, but also a lot of people who needed something to root for. You know, that there's a lot of division in this country right now, and I've talked a lot about the, the great Mr. Rogers line where he says, you know, when, when things are bad, look for the helpers. And you are the helpers. You and, and the guys and gals that have made this fight possible, and I want to thank your wife and your kids who spent a lot of days, you know, staring at the TV and staring at the door, waiting for you to come home, and they sacrifice as well, and that's often forgotten. But I just want to thank you, man, for inspiring the hell out of me and my family and people across this country who you'll never meet. Um, but if you do, they will buy you cake and ice cream for forever. <laughs> well, thank you, man. Uh, you've been very supportive, and you've helped me out a lot, you know, in our text and stuff, and I appreciate it. And, uh, Unfortunately, my mom's not around, but, I, you know, I'd like to thank my parents for for making me a fighter. You know, it, I feel like if you're going to teach your kids anything, it's to teach them to stand up for themselves. So my parents did that. Um, so, yeah. And I want to thank my own, my wife and my kids um, because you're right. You know, they not only do they have to put up with me when I'm home, but they also have to miss me when I'm gone. Um, so I thank them for that, too. But I thank all your listeners because, you know what? All those tweets, emails, and phone calls, they helped out a lot. Like, as, as much as silly as it sounds, making one phone call, you know, a thousand people calling one office in one day, that makes a huge impact. So, uh, thank you to everyone out there for, who helped us out. We really need it. Absolutely. All right, man. Well, drive safe. Um, tell the guys, you know, if, if they stop at any point, cake and ice cream on, on Chris Cuomo is the guy they can send the bill to. Okay, he's happy to provide that. 
Um, but but I look forward to seeing you in person soon, man. I know we've talked about getting our kids out on, on at the firehouse soon. I look forward to that and raising a glass to you and also to continuing to watch you, man. You, this is not over for you. America, I don't think, will allow it, but you deserve a, a much-needed break and our deepest thanks from America's Americans nationwide. Rob Sarah, you're a true hero. Follow him on Twitter. Um, keep an eye on him. Hopefully he'll run for mayor or something. <laughs> and all Americans can continue to be a part of the Rob Sarah uh, fan club. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, brother. You know the deal. If you're not and you're new, here it is. Every show, I offer ways to convert your righteous, understandable, dynamic anger into some positive action. Positive action that shows angry Americans can also be impactful Americans. We saw that with the 9-11 fight, and we're going to see that in the future. So I'm going to offer you an action that'll channel your energy, make you feel good, and make a difference. And like this show, they're always packed with the four eyes: integrity, information, impact, and inspiration. I asked you to step up and support our 9-11 first responders, and you did it. We got the job done, and we checked in with our pal, Rob Sarah. Your action paid off. And I want you to do one more thing this week. Register to vote. Do it. Do it now. I know some of you are not already registered. Maybe you're not sure. There are a lot of ways to find out. USA.gov is the best. Or you can literally just Google, how do I vote? Lots of options online. But if you're not registered, your vote doesn't count. And other people's votes will count a lot more including some people that you might not agree with. So get out there and register and get ahead of the game, be ready for the fight, and vote. Because you can't be in the game if you're not registered. If you've got a story to tell or a resource to share, use the hashtag AngryAmericans or go to our Facebook page or our website, AngryAmericans.us, and let me know. Don't just be angry. Be active. All right, it's been a big show, and big thanks to a few big folks that helped make this entire episode happen. First off, Rob Sarah, you're a true American hero, man. I got a beer for you, I got ice cream for you, and you got lots of love from this community. Big shout out to Rob Sarah and the entire Sarah family. Tommy Vitor, really, really grateful that he could join me. Has been really generous in supporting me and supporting Righteous Media and supporting this podcast. He's been a real trailblazer, and he's a great guy. I want to thank Tommy. Mizzen in Maine our founding sponsor of this show. They've been behind us for over a month now. Awesome people, awesome products. They make excellent shirts. And as I've told you, they're an American company. J.J. Watt digs them, and they make this show possible. Check them out at mizzenandmain.com or comfortableaf, comfortable.af. That's the best URL around. And if you live in Miami, Mizzen and Maine has got a store opening there very soon. So go check them out. Join them at the store and meet them in person. Good people and big supporters of Angry Americans. And if you're in Miami, it's hot. So you're going to need some of these Mizzen and Maine shirts. It gets real hot, especially in August. All right, big thanks to Eric Schonborn, Chris Rosenthal, Mercy Rich, and the whole fantastic team at Righteous Media. They continue to power this whole show. And we got some other stuff brewing that you're not going to want to miss. So stay tuned to Righteous Media and everything we got going on. Bill Schultz, you're an absolute wizard producing this episode late into the night, working your magic, 
You're a true guru, and I'm really grateful to have you by our side on this project and supporting it every step of the way. Oscar Mike, our awesome merch partners. Be sure to check out all the new designs now at angryamericans.us. American-made, super comfortable, and you'll look sharp. I want to thank the crew at Sirius XM, POTUS Channel 124, and especially Vicky Bergalina, Kelsey Nitra, uh, Christine Whalen, and of course, my friend Chris Cuomo. Uh, I'll be back on the air again next Monday, August 5th, so check me out there. And it's time for Thank a Listener. Every week, I want to thank a few angry Americans for listening and for letting me know. First off, Art Davis, who tweets it at ArtDAV. Uh, he's an old friend of mine. Uh, and a longtime community activist, a veteran. He's from Amherst, Ohio. He works at the VA. Uh, he's a peer supporter, an IAVA leadership fellow, uh, a vet activist, and always trying to improve uh, the lives of his fellow veterans. He's a guy who really makes a difference on the ground. And he reached out to me this week with some really, really powerful um, information. And he tweeted, while we were watching the debates, he tweeted, you know what makes me an angry American? I'm here with a family, a family I grew up with, dealing with their 18-year-old son killed in Afghanistan. During that same time, I'm seeing presidential hopefuls make no mention of their sacrifice. What happened to us? Who are we? That's from Art Davis, who is really an incredible guy. I want to send a big shout out and thanks to him for all his leadership, and especially in times like these. You continue to be a hero, my friend. Um, big thanks to Martin Walsh, who tweets at at Martin W2478. Martin Walsh from Chicago, Illinois. He's a husband, a father, and an educator. He checked out the Amy McGrath interview and tweeted, uh, Paul Rykoff just finished listening to the Amy McGrath interview. Keep the righteous anger coming. Will do, Martin. Thanks to you and everybody in Chicago. And lastly, want to thank Jonathan Freeman, another old friend of mine who is a veteran and continues to do great work. He tweets at at JF on IR. He's a soldier, an Iowan, a Jew, a longtime practitioner of TM meditation, previous co-host of The Gender Knot, no longer a doctoral student, and most importantly, a lover of pie. Uh, and he tweeted, congrats to Rob Sarah and the entire team who supported hashtag it should never be this hard, hashtag angry Americans. Jonathan's an incredible patriot, an incredible activist, an incredible guy, uh, and he also stayed in touch with me throughout his deployments and once actually flew an American flag on 9-11 and dedicated it to me when he was deployed in Afghanistan. I'll never forget that man. Always grateful for you and for all your leadership. So thank you all, and thank you to everybody else who listens in. As always, thanks to my family, my amazing wife, and my two boys, who continue to be absolutely incredible and patient, especially when I'm recording a podcast uh, and wrapping it up at like three in the morning before it drops. But I love you guys, and I'm so grateful for you. If you dig this show and you're listening, please tell your friends to check it out. If you're on Apple device and you like the show, you know the deal. Leave a quick review and keep the feedback coming on social media. I see you, I hear you, and I am with you. Uh, next week, I'm back on the radio, as I mentioned, Monday, August 5th. I'm guest hosting again for Chris Cuomo's Let's Get After It show on Sirius XM channel 124. If you're a XM, Sirius XM subscriber, you can listen live or on demand, or you can get a, a cheap subscription and check it out. But tune in, call in at Sirius XM channel 124. 
uh, next Monday and in many days to come. And I've talked about it before. Check out angryamericans.us. We got video from all our recent interviews. We got the cool gear. You can sign up for our newsletter and links to our, our YouTube channel and all other kinds of cool shit. So check it out. Uh, next week, be back with another interview from another important, inspiring, iconic American, one you're not going to want to miss. And I'm starting to book for the fall already, and we got some good stuff coming. I'm not going to tell you yet, but stay tuned and subscribe and share. We're going to keep this movement growing every single week. And remember, it's okay to be angry. No, you are not alone. We're all a little angry, and this movement is growing, and that's because we are paying attention. And together we can turn that vigilant anger into positive impact. I'm your host, Paul Rakoff. Thanks for listening. Stay vigilant, America. And keep your dukes up. Keep them up. Keep your dukes up. <laughs>